Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. If you would, please join me in turning to 1 Corinthians 15 for our scripture reading. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? 
With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is, is, is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed." In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forevermore. Father, we pray that this morning that you would indeed cause your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that this passage about the resurrection is the beginning of that. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause that to occur in the hearts of everyone here, Lord. That's a work only you can do. And we ask, Lord, that as we even were singing before about the gift of regeneration, that you called our name and, and caused us to come out of spiritual death to spiritual life. We pray, Lord, that you would do that even now in this room as these words are being um, spoken, as they're being enjoyed and reveled in. Lord, we pray that you would give new life. We also pray, Lord, that you would strengthen believers that are here. Believers that are suffering with sickness and weakness in their bodies, illness, fatigue, 
um, all sorts of struggles of the mind and the body. We pray, Lord, that you would cause just a fresh breeze of your spirit to, to bring them to, to a place of revival and strength. And Lord, as you say that um, joy comes in the morning, we pray, Lord, that you do that this morning. Pray that you do it for the glory of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on this morning, 33 A.D., at dawn, Mary Magdalene went to discover something that would change the entire world. So she goes to the tomb thinking she's going to find Jesus dead. And she's the first one to see the miracle that Jesus is alive after being dead for three days. And this is something that it is no exaggeration to say changed the entire world. You know, if you think about Roman culture at that time, and you think about what's happened over the centuries since Jesus was raised from the dead, a massive transformation occurred as God's people spread this message throughout the world. And now we see it in every corner of the world, God's transforming power. This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you guys don't have a Bible, just Google 1 Corinthians 15 ESV. And if you Google that, you can look with us. It's really important that you look at it. This is a very visual type thing. You want to actually look at the scriptures as we're in it. It's a really long chapter, as you saw. I'm going to dissect each verse. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we're, I'm going to make three simple points, and these are the three simple points about the resurrection. Three points are, it's important. It happened. You're next. Okay? <laughs> it's important. It happened. You're next. First one, it's important. The resurrection's important. Take a look at verse three. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The resurrection's important. It's actually of first importance, verse 3 says. In fact, Paul says later in this text, in verse 17, that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, there's no good reason to follow him. Okay? There's no, this is the, it's that important. He says in verse 17, check it out. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, meaning they died, have perished, if in Christ we have to hope only in this life, we are people most to be pitied. Okay, so there's no point in it if he wasn't raised. Verse 32, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, so the resurrection is important. Why is it important? It vindicates all of Jesus' claims. Jesus made some big claims. If the resurrection didn't happen, then all of his claims fall flat. Let me put it to you this way. You only have 4,000 weeks to live, on average. And many of you already used at least half of them. <laughs> I know, I'm fun on holidays. You're like, boy, that's a rough way to start. But it's true. We only have, on average, 4,000 weeks to live, uh, give or take. That would get you to 76. We've used a lot of them already. If the dead aren't raised and the gospel isn't true, I think you should live it up. If the dead aren't raised and the gospel isn't true, there's no reason for you to spend any of your precious 4,000 weeks here, that's for sure. If you have 1,000 of them left or 500 or whatever you've got. Um, and there's no reason to limit your sexual behavior, right, according to what Scripture says. There's no reason to do that. There's no reason to give your life to follow a dead Jesus. You should live it up. That's what Paul says. If it hadn't happened, there's no point here. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't waste your time. The resurrection is important because it vindicates all of Jesus' claims. And Jesus made big claims. Some of the big claims he made, the biggest kind of claims, he claimed to be God in the flesh. 
He claimed to be able to forgive all of your sins, not put you on a payment plan, not kind of have a plan to slowly get rid of them, but to actually forgive all of your sins. And he claimed to have the only cure for death. Okay, those are big claims. Those two things are actually related. The, the sin and the death part are connected because, guys, physical death is a consequence of sin. Ever since people started to sin against God, people started to die. Physical death is a consequence of sin. Physical death is also, guys, a graphic image of something much worse than physical death. It's something that the Bible calls the second death or hell. Physical death, as bad as it is, is a sign of a worse death, hell, the second death. The punishment our sins deserve following physical death. That's why Paul later in verse 56, he calls it the sting of death is sin, right? That, that because we're sinners, our physical death, if we're not saved through Jesus Christ, will result in the second death, which is hell, the never-ending sting of what our sins deserve. But Jesus is God who's come as a man to suffer both the first and the second death for you. Both death and hell. He's the only person that didn't deserve both of those. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve hell. He took on both of them for us. On the cross, Jesus Christ took both our death and the sting of our death. And the way you receive that, I just want to tell you up front, is by, it's by trusting in him. It isn't a process of religious behavior. It isn't getting involved in some sort of program to learn more. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. Just simple faith in Jesus Christ unites you to Christ, and you get all the benefits of who he is. You get all of his righteousness. He took all of your sin. You get his life in you. In the Gospels, when it talks about faith in Christ, when it talks about believing in Christ, the Greek is that we believe into him. So that when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you got united to him. You got into him such that his righteousness is yours and your sin was given to him. He covers you in his righteousness. And that's a, a work that he did so he could give it to you this morning. You know that Jesus is the only one actually that ever claimed to both remove all sin and undo death. He's the only one. I mean, there might be some crazy person, you know, at the beach or something that's saying this. But as far as world religions go, there's no one that's claimed to just like take your sin away in one act like that. And there's no one that has claimed to remove physical death. You say, well, a lot of religions teach an afterlife. They do teach an afterlife. But they don't teach this kind of thing. They don't teach a resurrection of the body and of the entire world. Because when we talk about the resurrection, we're not talking about life after death. We're talking about your life after your life after death. And let me back up there. So you got life after death. If you die right now in Christ, you go to be with the Lord. You, not in a body, obviously. The body's still here. Later when he returns, he gives you a resurrected body. That's life after life after death. And that's something that only Christianity offers. So the first thing to see is that it's important. It shows that Jesus really did conquer sin and death. So it's important. Second thing, it happened. The resurrection happened. Look at verse 3, about in the middle. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. He's talking, this is Paul talking. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Yeah, it's really important, guys, to this second point of it happened. 
And I know there's a common thing right now where Christians are kind of talking about evangelism and they're saying, you know what? People these days, they don't care about that part. They don't ask those questions about, you know, the historicity of the resurrection. And that's something, you know, we used to have to do before. Now you just need to make a simple plea of giving them the gospel, talk about their guilt and stuff they'll receive. They're not interested in the historicity of it. I think it's very important that it happened. (laughs) To me personally, it's very important that it happened. Blaise Pascal, he said that what we should do is we should show people the beauty of the gospel so that they would wish it's true and then show them it's true. Isn't that great? Show them the gospel in such a compelling way that they would wish, oh man, I hope that's true. That's what this passage does. And then show them that it is true. And that's what we see Paul doing here. The resurrection happened. In verses 3 through 9, we see four historical facts that everyone basically accepts. Even historians that don't believe in the resurrection, non-Christian ones, will usually give you four, these four facts that I'm going to show you. First one is in verse 3, Jesus died on a cross. Almost everybody will acknowledge that. Jesus was buried in a tomb which was later empty. That's a historical fact. Third, many people claim to see him alive again. You see that in verses 5 through 6. And then verses 7 through 9 say that this led to the conversion of some of the most unlikely people. So those are the four facts. A lot of historians that aren't Christians will give you those facts as true. Jesus died on a cross. He's put in a tomb that was later empty. Many people claim to see him alive and that this led to the conversion of tons of unlikely people. And what I want to say to you this morning is that the best explanation for those four facts is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. That's the best explanation of those facts. But people can doubt it in different ways. Like some have doubted the first fact that Jesus died on the cross. You know, people say, well, what if Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but, you know, later he was revived and then he showed himself to be alive and they thought it was a resurrection, but he was just reviving himself. I would say to that, guys, were you here on Good Friday? Those of you who are here on Good Friday, we saw what they did to him. Soldiers knew how to kill people, okay? So he's scourged, that would kill a lot of people. He's crucified, that would kill the rest. And then he was speared in the chest, to be sure. I mean, there are people, this is what they do for a living, okay? These aren't like they just grab some people off the street and said, hey, can you guys do a crucifixion today? No, they had professionals do this. And um, even if Jesus did somehow survive the scourging and the crucifixion and a spear into his chest, he hardly would be able to skip around three days later saying he was, you know, conquered death, right? He's not skipping anywhere with holes in his feet, right? He would look like the walking dead. He would not be walking dead right? Okay. Second one. Some have doubted concerning the second fact, the empty tomb. People say, well, maybe the witnesses just went to the wrong tomb. Easter, big misunderstanding, you know, went to the wrong tomb or someone stole the body. That's possible, guys, but that's not the whole claim. Our claim is not just that there's a tomb empty. Our claim is that many people saw him alive, okay? Many people saw him alive. Hundreds of people claimed to interact with him over a 40-day period, In a lot of church environments, you get kind of Good Friday, you get Easter, and then you just go on with a series on marriage or something, right? Well, a lot of times, which there's no problem with that, um, (laughs) but a lot of times there's not a remembrance of the Ascension or Pentecost. So six weeks after Easter, Jesus ascended. And if you mark Ascension in your church calendar and you do it in church, what you remember is that he spent six weeks walking around, talking to people showing himself to people. A lot of times, you know, if you came from a background that didn't mark ascension, it's kind of like, yes, did he just slink away? Or he was resurrected and then he just kind of like walked off the stage, you know? But he was ascended and so people saw him. Look at verse five, it says that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the 12, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He's like, you could ask them. 
They're still here, hundreds of them. Because this was written, you know, a decade, 15 years after the fact. At least half these 500 people are, are alive. You say, well, how are we going to find them? The church wasn't gigantic at that point, guys. You could find these people, and you could ask them. Some have doubted the third fact. Many people claim to see him alive. People say, well, you know, maybe these disciples are just overcome with grief, and they just wanted so badly for Jesus to be raised that they just kind of imagined that they'd seen him alive. The problem with that, guys, is they were not expecting him to be raised from the dead. They weren't expecting it. This wasn't wish fulfillment. They weren't wishing for it. They didn't know it was going to happen. And guys, they knew about things like visions and hallucinations just like we do, so they didn't trust their eyes. Do you remember Thomas? Thomas like, I won't believe unless I shove my hand into his wound. He's kind of an intense guy, you know? But they touched him. They felt him. They were with him. They didn't just like see him at a distance go, does that look like Jesus? Yeah, it does. He's raised, you know? No. They're interacting with him personally. At times, they met with him in big groups, like verse 5. 500 people at one time. Most are still alive. Now, people do have hallucinations. 500 people do not have coordinated, synchronized hallucinations, right? That would be tricky. It's hard enough for us to get you guys here on time. But to try and get like 500 believers to have a synchronized hallucination of Jesus raised from the dead, it's going to be tough to pull off. It doesn't happen. People say, well, you know, maybe the disciples just made up the whole thing and intentionally deceived everyone. You know, maybe it's a big scam, kind of a get-rich-quick kind of deal, right? Like a televangelist kind of situation. But guys, almost all of the apostles were brutally killed for refusing to recant that they had seen Jesus alive. People don't die for what they know is a lie. People die for lies all the time. But people don't die when they know it's a lie, right? And yet these people consistently did. What did they have to gain? All persecution in the beginning, brutal persecution. You guys know that the word, where the word martyr came from. The word martyr means witness. Witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. It was so common that they died that it became a word about killing people, martyring them. They died for their faith. And there was always a simple way out of martyrdom, right? It's like you're about to be burned at the stake, you're about to be crucified, you're about to get you know, rocks thrown on you until you die, and you could be like, all right, you got me. Like, I didn't see anything. It's that simple, right? You're not going to be ostracized from your community because most of them are like, that's great. I'm glad you stopped believing that craziness. Some have doubted the fourth fact, that this led to the conversion of some of the most unlikely people. You might think, well, these people weren't that unlikely because they're ancient people and, you know, you can't trust them, right? You know, maybe they were just real simple back then. They just kind of believe in stuff like resurrections. They don't demand a lot of proof. But that's not the case. They didn't believe in stuff like resurrections. The Jews believed, some of them, the Pharisees, believed in a resurrection of all believers at the end. They didn't believe in single resurrections like this. This wasn't a thing that they were, oh yeah, another resurrection. No, that wasn't something happening. And then the Romans hated the idea of resurrection. For them, the whole thing is escape from the body. The first Corinthians 15 is not good news to them. They don't want their bodies. They want to get away from their bodies. And so this wasn't something that they were prone to believe. They were very unlikely to believe in the resurrection. They were just as unlikely as you to believe in the resurrection you are likely to disbelieve it because of your materialistic view of the world, that you don't believe in the spiritual, you don't believe in God working in things, you don't believe in miracles. That wasn't their thing, but they had equally strong reasons to doubt the resurrection. It wasn't something that they believed would happen. And I think it needs to be said, too, that for us to somehow believe that people that lived a long time ago were somehow less intelligent than us and more gullible, it's pretty arrogant right? And I can own it. We all do it. We think, how long ago did you live? 
and their intelligence goes down based on that, right? So it's like you got a factory system, like, you know, for every century they lose like 15 points of IQ. So like people 2,000 years ago, it was super dumb. You know, people like Seneca and Plato and just all those knuckleheads, right? We tend to think that somehow with time we've gotten more and more intelligent, more and more discerning, we can trust ourselves more. It is true we have more technology and more information, but we are not smarter, guys. I think it's proven that, okay? And these sightings of Jesus led to the conversion of the most unlikely people. You guys realize that thousands of Jews were converted to Christ seven weeks after the resurrection in the same city that it did or didn't happen. That's amazing. It's not a very good explanation why thousands of Jews would suddenly worship a man that was crucified in the same city seven weeks later at Pentecost. Kind of impossible if there was no resurrection. And actually, we have two of the most unlikely people in this passage. Look at verses 7 through 9. There's two people in here that are actually some of the most unlikely converts. The first one is James. So what's the big deal about James? James is Jesus' brother. How many of you guys have siblings? How many of you guys have siblings that are likely to start a religion worshiping you as God? We got one back there? Okay. I mean, it can happen. I'm not saying it's totally impossible. But he saw something, right? You know, you don't worship your brother as God. You don't go to death for him, you know, claiming he's the Messiah, right? He saw the resurrection. How about Paul? Paul is super unlikely to convert to Christ. He had already dedicated his life to destroying the church. People are very unlikely to change their views on things when they're that entrenched in it. He had already killed people. He had already tortured people. He had already done all kinds of things to fight this movement. But he had the original Damascus Road experience, saw the resurrected Jesus, and was transformed. Guys, this whole, like, Jesus-worshiping thing was so unlikely to get off the ground. Because you have Romans, they saw people as crucified as just human garbage. Jews saw people that were crucified as cursed by God. There's no good reason for this thing to take off. Jesus comes claiming to be the Messiah. Many had. He got crucified by Rome. Many were. Their movements all die out. But Jesus' movement just grows, right? Why? Because something happened after his death to prove to people he was still worth following, even to the death. After he died on the cross, he came back and he showed up alive again. That'll do it. So Jesus spent 40 days walking and talking and eating with people and visiting with people. He'd surprise them. He'd make them cry with joy. And then after that 40 days, he left this world in his physical body in the ascension. And his people, amazed by that, spread the good news everywhere, even to like super exotic lands, like the Inland Empire. <laughs> Can you imagine if the apostles heard, we're going to the Inland Empire someday? They'd be like, wow, that sounds impressive. But the gospel made it all the way here. Why? Because of the power of the resurrection. So it happened, and so it's, it's important, it happened, and then thirdly, you're next. That's what's in verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Notice what Paul calls Jesus here. He calls them the firstfruits. What's a firstfruit? Well, it makes sense. It's the first fruit. You know, so if you have a crop of corn that you're going to harvest, or apples, or pears, or whatever. The first fruits are the very first fruits from that crop. It's the first thing that you harvest. And the idea is, is that whatever the first fruits are, you're going to get a bunch more of the same kind. 
So what's he saying here? He's saying Jesus is the first fruits in that Jesus is the prototype of your resurrection. If you're in Christ, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection you're going to be a part of. His body is the prototype for it. You're next. And just like Jesus was the first fruits, and his body, it was transformed into his new body. So you didn't leave a body in the grave, right? His earthly body got transformed into his new body. Paul says here that our old bodies will be turned into our new bodies the way a seed turns into a flower. Take a look at verse 36. What you sow, he's talking about your dead body. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that will be, but the bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. So our bodies are going to come from these bodies. They're going to be wonderfully upgraded and made new, but they're going to come from our bodies. Our, our new resurrection bodies will come from our old bodies the way uh, a sunflower comes from like a sunflower seed. You guys can't see that, sunflower seed. But seeds are weird, actually. It's strange and unexpected that you wouldn't think a sunflower would pop out of this, would you? You wouldn't expect anything live coming out of this thing. It looks so dead. It looks dry. In fact, it has to die to live, right? There's no hint that this thing, if you put it in the ground, would just like spring up into life, come back to life, and come and in a way that's like way bigger than it was before and way more beautiful. The older you guys get, the more you're going to look like a seed. <laughs> See, I'm fun on holidays. The older you get, the more you're going to look like a seed. Um, one day, guys, they're going to plant us in the ground. And there's going to be some people that are there when we're being planted in the ground that are going to assume that's the end of us. They're going to talk about like, oh, Eric, you know, he'll live on in our hearts, in our memories. You know, ones that are really romantic about it, he's got his wings. And another angel in heaven. Guys, that's not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that we'll rise again. We will rise again. You guys realize hundreds of years ago, the most common thing on these tombstones of people that died a long time ago was the Latin resurgum. It means I will rise again. I'm not going to live on in Bob's heart, right? I'm going to rise again. You're going to rise again. And so these seeds, our bodies, are our resurrection seeds. When Christ returns, they're going to sprout up in glory. And guys, we're going to leave empty tombs just like Jesus did. And I just say, make sure you fold your laundry just like he did. You guys know that? You kind of fold the linens. I love that part. So what will our resurrected bodies be like? Take a look at this. Take a look at verse 42. Our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. He says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. This word perishable is, can also be translated corruptible. It has a sense of metal rusting, okay? So our bodies age, they decay, they become achy. You know, we feel kind of the rust in our joints and in our backs. But one day our rusty old bodies will be raised, unaging, undying, unaching. We're going to be raised imperishable. We're also going to be raised in glory. Take a look at verse 43. Our bodies will be sown in dishonor and raised in glory. This has to do with your physical appearance. It will be glorious. And I know you're probably like, oh, I don't really need to be all shiny or anything. I'm kind of my low key. I don't need any glory. Guys, it's no secret that Californians are extremely vain. Right? And you're like, well, I'm not a real Californian. I really want to be in Idaho. It's like, you're a Californian. <laughs> and you're vain. Did I ever tell you guys that in high school I worked in a tanning salon? Which is great for high school boys. It's a great job for them. 
And so in the 90s, guys, people were so concerned about being tan that you could actually sell them sunlight in the summer in San Diego. I know what you're thinking, crazy white people, right? Yeah. Guys, it's no different today. It's no different today. Anyone who takes 20 selfies and runs it through 20 filters is seeking glory. We want glory, right? And with age, our glory fades. You guys know this. You felt the pain of it. Some of you haven't. Some of you are like at the top of your looks. Enjoy that, okay? You should have seen me in the 90s. Long hair, ponytail, Doc Martens, Wolfsburg edition Jetta, black. I know, it was the thing to have. Disc changer in the back, YouTube playing. It was glorious. I still have the docs, but the glory's faded, and your glory's going to fade too. But here's the cool thing, is that you're going to be raised in glory. Now, what's raised in glory mean? It means that for the first time, you're going to fully reflect the glory of God. Isn't that cool? You're going to fully, perfectly reflect the glory of God. You're made to be an image bearer of God, and you're going you're to image forth his glory. And anybody that's a believer here, you're like, you ache to do that. You want to reflect him, and you will. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. Verse 43, our bodies will be sown in weakness and raised in power. This is a great one, too. We all face weakness, right? We either face physical weakness. Some of us deal with mental health issues. We deal with mental weakness, emotional weakness, psychological weaknesses. We, we experience weakness, but we're going to be raised in power. That means the inside and the outside fix, right? Johnny Erickson Tata, many of you probably know her story, but when she was 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, and she misjudged the shallowness of the water, and she fractured her neck, and she lived, she's still alive, 50-plus years as a quadriplegic, so she's paralyzed from the shoulders down. Listen to what she says about her hope in the resurrection. She says this, Somewhere in my body, my paralyzed body, is the seed of what I'll become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast these atrophy, useless legs to what I will have, the splendorous, resurrected legs I will receive. Isn't that amazing? Amen. No matter how ripped off you feel about the weakness you have in this life, whether you have some sort of disability, whether it's deal the things emotionally, mentally, whatever weakness you have, and you feel like, man, like you look at other people and you think what they have, and you think, man, I've been ripped off. No one will get ripped off in the end. No one will get ripped off in the end. Johnny Erickson taught, I won't, you won't. We'll be sown in weakness and raised in power. Verse 44, our bodies will be sown in natural body, raised a spiritual body. This one's really cool. So people get tripped up here and they go like, oh, I thought he was talking about a physical resurrected body and now he's talking about a spiritual body. What's going on? People sometimes see this and they think, oh, maybe our bodies won't be physical after all. You know, they take spiritual as non-physical. That's not the way Paul uses the word spiritual. He doesn't use the word spiritual to contrast it with physical. When Paul says spiritual, he means of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, connected to the Holy Spirit. Spiritual, he always means some connection to the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is doing here is he's not saying what your body will be made of, some spiritual thing, whatever that would be, but what it'll be governed by, what it'll be empowered by. Spiritual here means that your body will be empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit all the time. A natural body would be a body, and we've lived this way, where it's just being empowered by merely creaturely power. By spiritual body, he means that your physical body that's raised 
will be 100% led by the Holy Spirit. For those of you guys who are Christians here today, that means a lot to you. Because <laughs> you've tasted what it's like to live in the Spirit. Like, you've tasted what it feels like to live Spirit-empowered, to walk in the Spirit, as Paul calls. But man, you walk out of the Spirit all the time, right? And the hope here is, uh, the thing we, we're going to have is that we're going to, 100% of the time, be empowered by the Holy Spirit every day, all day. What's sown a natural body would be raised a spiritual body. And I love how he sums it up in verse 49. He says this, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, he's talking about Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So here's the bottom line, is that you already know what it's like to live in a body that's prototyped after Adam, the fallen first human. You know, you know what that's like to live like that. But what you're going to have is a body that's prototyped after Jesus, the, the man from heaven. So when you think about your resurrection body, you have questions about that, you should think about, well, what could Jesus do, right? Not what did Jesus do? What could he do, right? I had a guy I was talking to several weeks ago. He's going through cancer right now. And he had asked me, do you think we'll eat in heaven? And I was like, I was going to swerve off the road. I was like, we need to take care of this right now, you know? We're going to have that time where we're going to be in heaven worshiping God. But then from the resurrection on, of course we're going to eat. Of course we're going to live. We're going to relive in physical bodies in a physical resurrected world. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. Of course you're going to eat. People go like, oh, well, we recognize each other. I'm like, of course we're going to recognize each other. We're going to be ourselves. We're going to be more ourselves than we've ever been before. We're going to be able to hear each other talk. We're going to do things. I mean, I don't know what he's got for us in the new world to do, but certainly there's going to be things to do. I'm not writing a book about that, don't worry. Isn't this what our heart longs for, guys? Isn't what our heart longs for is for our bodies to be made new? I mean, some belief systems, what all, the best they offer you is extinction after death. What happens after death? Nothing. You're dead. Done. No consciousness. Some belief systems offer that. Some belief systems offer a ghostly bodily existence for eternity, right? That's not what Christianity offers, by the way. That's kind of the American folk religion. Bob's gone to a better place. He's with me in his heart. He'll live on in our memories, right? No. What he's offering us is resurrection. Isn't that what you really want? You know? You don't want to cease to exist. You don't want to be a bodiless ghost. You long to have your death undone, don't you? You long to live a little longer than 4,000 weeks, but in a body made new, don't you? Would you like to up it to 40,000 weeks if you have this resurrected body? Would you like to go longer? Guys, I guarantee that this quality of life that Jesus gives us, we won't want that to end. And you say, well, yeah, of course I, I, I want it to be true. How do I know? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the way we know is it's already started. There's one resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. You're next. It's one thing. It's already begun. You say, well, how will I know? When will it start? It started. You're next. Not just our bodies, guys, but the whole world is going to be resurrected. It's going to be made new. The whole world is going to have a resurrected newness just like our bodies. And so it'll be the perfect promised land for us to live in, to enjoy Jesus in person, and to enjoy one another. You know, the tough thing with resurrection is, is that, you know, we look at something like Jesus' resurrection, and the reason it seems impossible to us is because it, things like that don't happen here. It's a very strange thing to happen in this world because this world is a world of sin and death. And so you don't see things like that happen very often. When Jesus is walking around doing miracles, these seem so strange. Guys, resurrection is a very normal thing for the world to come. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is the first event of the new world. 
So just like when they found Jesus at the dawn of the first day of the week, right? That was the dawn of the first day of the new creation. It is now invading as people come to Christ, and then his kingdom will fully come, like I prayed in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's going to happen, right? Easter was the dawn of the new creation. It was the beginning of the new creation invasion. So let me close real quickly by just showing you what you can expect from here. It's in verse 51. I'm going to read it and just make a few quick comments. But take a look at verse 51. You've got to see this. It starts with behold, so you need to look, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 51. It says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, talking about dying, but we shall all be changed, talking about resurrection body, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. When does this happen? This happens at the end, the second coming, when Jesus returns, makes all things new. It says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. He's talking about there that those who have died in Christ already, their, their resurrection seeds, their bodies are going to be raised. They're going to be made new. They're going to be resurrected like Jesus. But then believers that are still here, we won't be left out. We'll immediately after that be transformed and given resurrection bodies. This is the plan you pick, if you get to pick, is the not dying plan, you know. So for those people, if they're still around, they'll be resurrected and made new. And then he says this, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. I love this because it's like a boast against death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's victory over sin, victory over death. And then this is the charge to you guys going out from here. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We're going to do it one more time. And it's got to be loud. Okay. Especially after that. So I'm not doing it right now. I'm going to say he's risen. And you're going to do it loud. Okay? He is risen. He is risen indeed. And we shall rise again. Let's pray. Father, make us a steadfast, immovable people, always abounding in your work, knowing that in you our labor is never in vain. Love that. Any labors done for you in this world, we're just going to be amazed at the dividends in the world to come. Your son promised us, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Father, make us the kind of people who believe that to the core of our bones. Make us unafraid of death, unafraid of persecution, unafraid of missing out in this life, unafraid to give you our whole lives, unafraid to lay down our lives for the gospel, for the people in this church, and for the lost. People who live as those who never die. People like us don't die. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.